You always need to make sure you bring your Bible up uh, when you come onto the stage when you're about to preach from the Bible. Uh, Good morning. My name is Andrew. And because we have the delight of coming to the communion table this morning, we're going to jump right into our sermon. Um, This morning is Pentecost Sunday. And if you're new to church or you have no idea what Pentecost means, it's basically referring to the day, the time in the scriptures where God's Holy Spirit was poured out on his people. They had been gathering for prayer. Um, Jesus had just died, risen, and ascended to the Father, and Jesus had told them to wait. And so they were together praying, and then all sorts of crazy stuff happened, and the Holy Spirit filled them, and they were able to share the message of Jesus uh, with everyone who had gathered in the city of Jerusalem at that time. And on this uh, Pentecost Sunday morning, it's appropriate that we are concluding our series called The River where we've been exploring the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And our text this morning, I would invite you to find a Bible and turn to our passage. It's John 7, verses 37 to 39. And if you don't know how to find your way yet in a Bible, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 867. And I'll let you turn there, and then we'll read that together. I think the rustling is starting to stop. John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is the word of the Lord to us. Why don't we pray? Holy Spirit, would you come? And would you cause these words which we've just read that were inspired by you, that you caused the Apostle John to write, would you cause these words to land in our hearts, in our minds as never before? Would we hear good news this morning that will transform us to live an empowered and victorious Christian life? For your name and for your glory, I pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. In this passage, we're going to consider this morning what the fullness of the Spirit is and what it can look like in our lives. First of all, I want us to look at the condition. What qualifies people to be filled with the Spirit? The first word that Jesus says in verse 37 is if. In the NIV, it says, let anyone who is thirsty, but the word there is if. There's a condition there that needs to be met. And in the world of religion, um, religion loves throwing conditions at us, right, that that we need to meet. So uh, if anyone is moral enough, if anyone has enough good deeds, if anyone is, is nice enough, 
whatever system of religious thought people ascribe to, the thought is that once you have that condition met, then God's going to accept you, right? That then God's going to give you a blessing of some sort. And the basic logic is that we need to bring something to the table, right? That there's some qualification we need to bring to God that we then say, okay, God, now, now you owe me this, right? You owe me heaven. I've been a good person. God, you owe me the spirit. I've done X, Y, and Z. But notice in this passage how Jesus isn't bringing religion. He's bringing gospel. The good news of his kingdom and the logic of the gospel are completely different from the logic of religion. With regards to the question of salvation and of being made right with God, the good news, the gospel is that we're made right with God through God's undeserved kindness toward us. That Jesus, in his grace, took our record of evil and wrongdoing on himself, that he died in our place, and he gives us his clean and perfect record, right? Undeserved kindness. What about the question of being filled with the Spirit? Is that grace too? Once you're saved by grace and grace alone and you have this new birth in Christ, what then? I feel like we can sometimes fall into thinking that once you're a Christian, then you need to toil. Then you need to struggle. You need to struggle to be filled with the Spirit. You need to pray hard to attain fullness. And that the filling of the Spirit is going to come to only the qualified Christian and not those other Christians. What does Jesus say here? If anyone is thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, all you need to be is thirsty. Isn't that just the simplest condition? This means that when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, we don't bring anything to the table. In fact, it means that we come with less than nothing because we have a need, right? What does it mean to thirst? It it means you lack water, right? It means you need water. We're like these empty vessels needing to be filled. And that need, that thirst, that's what qualifies you in Jesus' eyes. That we know we need him and we know we need his spirit. So he says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Isn't that good news? (laughs) It's good news that the gospel doesn't save us into religion, but the gospel saves us into more gospel. That the Christian life is informed in every aspect by the gospel. The undeserved kindness of God being expressed towards us at every turn, including the matter of the fullness of the Spirit. And honestly, I think if we spent more time hearing the gospel and letting, its work, letting it work its way into all the dimensions of our life, 
instead of being anxious about whether or not we're filled with the Spirit or comparing ourselves to those we perceive as gifted, anointed individuals, I think if we just heard the gospel, let the Spirit bring the gospel of Jesus to us, that there would be renewal in our lives and in our church. All you need to be is thirsty. It's the simplest condition. And look at the action that follows, the action. All you need to do is come to Jesus, come to me and drink. It's the simplest act. We're going to camp out on those five words, come to me and drink, because I think they're loaded with insight about how it informs how we are to live the Christian life filled with the Spirit. Two things we're going to notice is that the fullness of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, is ongoing, and it comes from Jesus. There's an important detail about the two verbs there, come and drink. In the Greek, they're actually in the present tense. And yes, I like to get nerdy sometimes with, with original language stuff. But the present tense in Greek is a beautiful thing. It doesn't just say when an action is happening. It tells us what kind of action it is. And in the present tense, uh, the action is a continuous action. The action is a continuous action. The sense of what Jesus says in this verse is if you are thirsty, keep on coming to me and keep on drinking. The fullness of the Spirit is not a one and done kind of thing. Jesus invites us into an ongoing life rhythm of coming to him for the fullness of his Spirit. And the same thing is going on in Ephesians 5.18 when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. It's present tense. He's saying, keep on being filled with the Spirit. And this makes sense, right? It's not just a one zap and you're good because we are finite human creatures. If we ever think that God could just download all of himself and all he wants to show us in one moment, I think we'd be delusional. There is so much of God. There is, he's so big. He's so much bigger than us. Last night, Eli, we were in bed. I was snuggling him. And he, he turns to me. He says, Daddy, is God bigger than 10 million? I said, yeah, he's bigger than 10 million. He says, but Daddy, is he bigger than 10,000? I said, yeah, yeah, he is. He's like, okay, Daddy, is he bigger than 10? Yes, Eli, he is. And what Eli is trying to grasp is the greatness of God, and let's be honest, we haven't grasped the greatness of God either. And so the filling of the Spirit, this, this connection of the life of God being breathed into us and poured out onto us, it's this ongoing thing. We need it every day. And the religious instinct of some of us that we, that we think about sometimes is that we need to make a really big deal about the prayer to be filled with the Spirit, right? Like, I need to fast three days. It needs to be accompanied with big theological words. And then the prayer to be filled with the Spirit will be effective. I want to say that what we did last Sunday in praying to be filled with the Spirit 
was beautiful and necessary, but it wasn't a mere ritual. And please don't think that's how it needs to happen for you in your life. And please don't wait to the next time we do that to ask God to fill you with his spirit. The gospel tells us to simply come to Jesus and receive the spirit as if it were the most intuitive and natural thing in your life. As normal and natural as drinking. That's the word Jesus uses. Come to me and drink. I've had the amazing and terrifying experience of seeing my three kids born. And what's amazing is, is that when a baby's born, one of the first things a baby knows how to do is drink. It's incredible. And, and these days, doctors are quick to take the baby once they're born and, and get it to the breast as fast as as possible. This baby knows nothing. This baby has no capacities. Its eyes are not open, but let me tell you, it knows how to drink. In the first 30 seconds of its life, it is going at it. Why am I sharing this? In the Gospel of John, Jesus likens the Christian life to a new birth. And you might be a new Christian here And you might think that, oh, the filling of the Spirit is something that comes to the qualified, the mature Christians. I I can look forward to that later. But what's immediately apparent with the image of drinking is that, no, babies drink. Come to Jesus and drink now. You might be a, a Christian and you've known Jesus for many years, but maybe you've not really learned this skill It's fundamental and basic to the Christian life. You can't live without drinking and you can't live the Christian life without receiving the Spirit, without being filled. Keep on being filled. A.W. Tozer said, the Spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It's part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. This isn't Christianity elite. This is basic Christianity. And you might be here this morning in the habit of thinking that you're not worthy enough for the fullness of the Spirit, and you exclude yourself. There's lots of ways we can do that in in our minds. You exclude yourself because you perceive the Spirit-filled people, they're like a holy huddle of these elite people, and I'm not part of them. I just want you to take that thought and throw it in the garbage. Seriously. Come and join the club of unworthy people who have been made to stand in the worthiness of Jesus. That simple prayer, come Holy Spirit, takes about 1.6 seconds. Nobody's counting, but I mean, you could pray that prayer 500 times a day. Because the fullness of the Spirit isn't a static condition. It's an ongoing relationship. It's expressed and it's nurtured in prayer. Lord, my sinful nature is getting the best of me now. Fill me with your love. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, I feel crippled and angered by bitterness and resentment. Help me to forgive. Remind me of the gospel, that you've forgiven me of a debt that I could never have paid. Help me to live the gospel now in this situation. 
How would your life change if you started to have that kind of prayer life with God? I think it would change dramatically. The filling of the Spirit is ongoing, and the filling of the Spirit comes from Jesus. Yesterday, I was sitting in Starbucks, um, working through this sermon and praying through it, and a guy walked in. He had really white hair and cool, thick, black-rimmed glasses, so he caught my attention. And he had one of those statement T-shirts, right? A T-shirt with just print stuff written on it. And it said this, Now we sip champagne when we thirsty. Now we sip champagne when we thirsty. And I, you know, I'm a Googler. I just Google everything. And I Googled that, and it turns out it's a a lyric from a song by Notorious B.I.G. Never, ever listen to Notorious B.I.G. Don't do it. But that t-shirt reminded me that we live in a world where people are going after all kinds of things to fill them, right? That's like the air we breathe when we're out in the city, when we're out on the street, and what's coming to us through the radio and the TV. And sure, there might be momentary satisfaction in some of these things that the world goes after. And maybe here this morning, you're going after some of those things too to experience fullness or enoughness in your life. But Jesus reminds us this morning that those wells are gonna run dry pretty quickly and that we need to come to him. Those two little words, come to me, are crucial come to me, whoever believes in me, are crucial for us. And look at what John says in verse 39. He says, up to that time, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Again, the the, the giving of the Spirit is focused on Jesus. It comes from him. And more specifically, it is contingent on his glorification. Before the Spirit could be poured out and and humanity and people could enjoy his fullness, our broken relationship with God had to be reconciled. And Jesus has done that on the cross. For John, the glorification of Jesus is his death on the cross. John is so clear in John chapter 19 that what we see when Jesus uh, is nailed to the cross and and is hoisted up, he's lifted up, that that is his enthronement. It's his ascent to the throne of the universe. In chapter 19, John includes the details. He's given a purple robe. He's given a crown of thorns pressed into his head. And the notice above him reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's where Jesus is glorified. That's where Jesus is shown to be who he truly is, and that's where Jesus demonstrates the glory of God. That God is not a far-off deity who's just looking to punish people when they get out of line, but he's the God who comes to us, becomes one of us, and goes to the grave for us. He's the good king who lays down his life 
for the sake of the world. That's who he is. And that had to happen first before the Spirit could be given. New Testament scholar William Barclay comments, the Holy Spirit has always existed, but men really never enjoyed his full power until after Pentecost. And it's been finally said, there could be no Pentecost without Calvary. It was only when people had known Jesus that they really knew the Spirit. In this apparently startling sentence in verse 39, John is not saying that the Spirit did not exist, but that it took the life and death of Jesus Christ to open the floodgates for the Spirit to become real and powerful to all people. There can be no Pentecost without the cross. This is true in history, and this is also true personally for us, right? You might be here this morning, and you hear about rivers of life. Oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Who wouldn't want that? But without first being made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus, there's there's no river in your life. The blood of Jesus poured out on the cross, and the outpoured waters of the Holy Spirit go together. And if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, the invitation is is a standing invitation to be reconciled to God this morning, to believe in Jesus. Later, we're going to come to the communion table, and there's going to be time to reflect and pray. And on this pink insert in your bulletin, there's a great prayer at the bottom. If you don't have the words or you don't know how to give your life to Jesus, check out that prayer, and that'll help you do that. I now want us to look at how might being filled with the Spirit change your life. And I just want to say, um, because our experience and thoughts about the Spirit often comes to us from others, right? Um, And and some of us wonder, well, if I get filled with the Spirit, am I going to become a wacky person? Um, Am I going to start speaking in tongues? And and maybe you might. Um, But let me say this, that Uh, the Spirit's fullness in each one of our lives is going to look different because we are different, right? I want us to hear what Tom Smale, who's a charismatic Anglican theologian, which is an awesome mix, uh, he says this uh, about the Holy Spirit. He uses the image of the Spirit as an artist. He says, the Spirit is an artist whose one subject is the Son, and who is concerned to paint countless portraits of that subject on countless human canvases. Isn't that beautiful? He wants to paint countless portraits of Jesus on countless human canvases, using the paints and brushes provided by countless human cultures and historical situations. It is Jesus, the incarnate Son of the Father, and no other, that the Spirit seeks to portray. That is so cool. For a church like ours, in light of where we live in our composition, he's using our cultures, he's using our life experience to paint a unique portrait of Jesus in your life. So there's something we need to know. How might being filled with the Spirit change your life? It's that you're going to start to look like Jesus. You're going to start to reflect Jesus. 
That is the Spirit's overwhelming preoccupation, and that's what Christian theology sometimes calls sanctification, right? Sanctification is this process where God is refining us and He's purifying us so that our lives reflect Jesus. And I want to look at two ways that the Spirit does this in us. He convicts us of our sin and He convinces us of God's love. And uh, there's a lot more we could say, and I think Nikki already said it in her prayer which was just like a fully orbed theology of the Holy Spirit. It was awesome. But we're going to look at these two components. The Spirit convicts us of our sin, and He convicts, uh, convinces us of God's love. And in case you think those two things are on opposite ends of the, the spectrum, they're actually very closely related, as we're going to see. So um, when we have the new birth in Christ... Newsflash, everyone, we're not like Jesus, right? Uh, There's stuff in our lives from the old life um, that we continue to struggle with and wrestle with, and we are given new birth, and then the task of the Christian is then to live out that new birth, to live out that new identity in Christ. Check out what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 12. I don't have it on the screen but I'll just read it to us. In Romans 8, 12, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, that is Christians, therefore, Christians, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, that is the sinful nature, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. How often do we feel in our lives that we are obligated to indulge our sin? obligated in the sense of that our passions are driving us that way, that we are powerless to resist. How often do we feel trapped? Paul is saying sin and the sinful nature isn't what has power over you anymore. You're not obligated to that anymore. He says you've been born again and you have a new nature and your obligation is now to the spirit. Check out what he says He continues, he says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death, present tense, ongoing, you are putting to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's saying that the Spirit doesn't just show us our sin, but the Spirit gives us the power to put that sin to death, right? The Spirit gives us the power to deal with that sin, and I think one of the primary ways he does that is the Spirit reminds us of Jesus and of the gospel. So sin loses its power over you when you can... When, so say Satan brings an accusation to you, right? You're this, you're that. You know what Martin Luther did in his conversations with Satan? He was weird. He had conversations with Satan. He would say to Satan, yeah, well, you forgot this, 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 and this. He said, I'm forgiven. There's nothing you can throw at me. There's no accusation you can throw at me that I don't know about and that God doesn't already know about. So I'm going to stand in the gospel. The Spirit reminds us, whoa, I'm forgiven of this sin, and all of a sudden it loses its power over me. And I can walk out the new birth in Christ. The Spirit convicts us of our sin, gives us the power to put it to death by preaching the gospel to us. There's another thing. The Spirit convinces us of God's love. 
if there's one thing that we see in Jesus's life with crystal clarity, it's that he knew he was loved by the Father, right? We see this in the baptism scene when Jesus is baptized, uh, the heavens open up, the Spirit comes down on him as a dove, and this voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know you're living in the fullness of the Spirit when you know that those words spoken to Jesus are spoken to you because of what Jesus has done for you. That's what he wants for every Christian, to be unwavering in the assurance that we are indeed God's beloved children. In fact, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption in Romans 8. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. He brings that assurance. He convinces us of God's love. And the movement of the Spirit is actually really beautiful. It's a movement that moves from the Father through the Son to humans like you and I who have been saved by Jesus. This is central to the role of the Spirit. Romans 5, 5, again, Nikki's already uh, recited this verse for us. It says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul's just using the same metaphor that Jesus is using, of water, to highlight the role of the Spirit to impart the love of God to you and to I. This is fundamental to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. He communicates the delight of the Father to us in our deepest parts. So you know you are living in the fullness of the Spirit when you're growing in the knowledge and an awareness of God's love for you that even on your worst day, right? Just picture yourself on your worst day. Even on your worst day, God looks at you and says, this is my child. I'm crazy about them. He convicts us of our sin and he convinces us of God's love. And let me just say, these go together. Sometimes we can think, um, and let me just say that the world certainly thinks this. It thinks that it would be unloving for God to point out our sin, right? Like a, a God who is love would only affirm me and would never point out my idol's or my sin. And maybe you've thought that before. Maybe you operate with that as an implicit understanding. But let me tell you the truth. The truth is that only an evil God would keep quiet about your sin. Only a being who wills your destruction would stay silent about something that's slowly killing you, right? So, so think of the parental metaphor. If, if I, as a parent willingly and intentionally avoid my duty to teach my kids about the reality of sin and its presence in my life, in their lives, and in the world. In order to do that, I would either have to be severely misguided or downright evil. 
It's because God loves us that he shows us the sin that's in us. And God does it ever so gently, ever so winsomely, and that's how we need to do it with our kids as we instruct them in the Lord, not overburdening them, but welcoming them into gospel freedom in the area of sin. Hebrews 12, 6 says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. They're not separate things. And let me just say this, if if you're living without either one of those things in your life, if you are either on one hand silencing the voice that would point out your idols and convict you of sin, or if, if you're not listening to that first voice of love and God's delight in you, you can't live a victorious Christian life. Without either of those, you will live a defeated Christian life. If you don't allow the conviction of sin to bring you to repentance, you're going to be shriveled and defeated by your sin. In the power of the spirit that you hear other Christians talking about in their testimonies, that's just going to seem like a far distant dream to you. It's going to feel like a fairy tale. Like, great for them, it's too good to be true, it can't be mine. But if you don't trust that God truly loves you and accepts you because of the life and death of Jesus, you're going to live with anxiety, let me tell you. (laughs) You're going to live with the anxiety that God's never really pleased with you. And you're either going to give up trying right then and there, or you're going to spend your entire life striving to earn something you've already been given. We can't earn what we've already been given in Christ. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The last thing I want to mention is that the filling of the Spirit impels us into mission. Mission is a, is a word we use often in the church, um, and it really just means that we live a life of sharing Jesus. I just want to make it really simple. Mission is sharing Jesus wherever you are. This means that we share Jesus in words, of course, but I would say there's an equally great need for the church to be sharing Jesus with our lives. Um, I was teaching the baptism class last week and we were talking about this. The, the, The priority that the scriptures put on our actions reflecting our beliefs and if, if, if we are preaching the gospel and talking about God's love but it's not evidenced in our lives, I use the image, it's, it's like a doctor who smokes, right? We're sending one message by saying, you know, this is the way to life, but then we're doing the complete opposite. <laughs> and it's either going to confuse people or hurt people and it probably will turn them off from Jesus. The Holy Spirit imparts God, God's love to us so that it overflows and it spills out into our relationships and it enables us to walk in the way of Jesus. The filling of the Spirit has to lead to mission. Remember that issue, uh, the, the picture of the river in Ezekiel 47, which in Rebecca's drawing we can see there. Remember how that river began at the temple as this tiny trickle 
and then supernaturally it becomes this huge river that can't be crossed, and the river moves out into the land, and it goes into deserted places and makes them fruitful. It goes into the Dead Sea, and it makes it fresh. Trees start springing up on the bank of this river, and the trees produce fruit like every month. Have you ever had a tree that produced new fruit every month? I have not. I don't have any trees, but I've never seen one that does. <laughs> I wish I had a tree. That's a crazy amount of fruit. And it's fruit that's flowing from the place of God's presence, his temple, the, 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 the people of God now in the New Testament, which Paul calls us the temple of God, flows from them out into the world. See that? It's all summed up in these words, where the river flows, everything will live. What if people started saying that of the church? That where the church is, wherever the church is in the world, everything starts to come alive. That wherever the people of God are filled with God's spirit, the life of God and the love of God spill out into the community. And there's life, there's peace, there's justice, there's holiness, and there's reconciliation, and there's love. And that's what God wants for us. And that's what God wants for his church. That we are to be channels through which the current of the Holy Spirit flows. Carrying the river of God's life and love into the world. I want to end with something before we come to the table that A.B. Simpson said. A.B. Simpson was writing in the late 1800s, and he has really old-fashioned language. Um, so when you hear the word Holy Ghost, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, just so you know. He's not talking about a kid with a blanket over him. Um, but listen to what Simpson says. He says, The love which the Holy Ghost teaches is not confined to any class or condition but like the love of God himself is able to reach and embrace not only the stranger and the alien, but also the unworthy, the unlovely, the unloving, and even the most malignant enemy and the most uncongenial object. It is nothing less than the very heart of God himself infused into our heart. It is the love of God himself imparted to us through the Holy Ghost, we cannot wring it out of our selfish hearts or work it up by any effort of our will. It must come down to us from the very heart of God and be shed abroad by the Holy Ghost himself. This delightful fact makes the exercise of love a possibility for even the coldest and hardest heart. It is a gift of grace. It is available for all and we have but to realize our need, yield ourselves to God, be willing to receive it and exercise it and go forth to fulfill it in His strength. And as it is a gift, it involves no merit on the part of the receiver, for it's not our love, but the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom must ever be all the glory. With that, I want to invite the worship team to come and those serving communion to come and to lead us to the Lord's table where we might see, taste, take into ourselves this gospel of grace.